You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. This will be your host, Abraham, and I am very happy to announce that we get to have a special guest today. Joining me is Stuart Law. Hi. Uh, Sue and I have been friends for a very long time, and he, despite wanting to not be known as the psychedelics guy, is getting that role today (laughs) because uh, I invited him here to talk about psychedelics, and you are in press publishing a paper on this, yeah? Yeah, we currently have an article in under review for the Journal of Contextual Behavior Science. Rad. So... I figured that we would try and uh, just have a discussion about as much of that as is relevant. I think psychedelics is something that a lot of people are pretty interested in, generally speaking, and can unpack a little bit of the history and sort of where it's at in contemporary culture and what there is to be optimistic about, I guess. Cool. Yeah. All right. So uh, you want to start by how you sort of got involved in this? So there is the journal article that we submitted uh, it's a special edition on psychedelics so there's a lot of momentum in that domain and so the journal editors decided to release a special edition on psychedelics my advisor was asked to submit an article and that fell to me (laughs) as as happens sometimes cool and what i guess was your sort of history with this before you were asked to write that I mean, I've interacted with psychedelics <laughs> to, to some extent, you know, not on a professional level. You know, I've been around them. I have some sense of the effects that they have <laughs> on the human body. But, you know, nothing like medical or professional or psychological. I've never used it as a therapeutic assistive device or anything like that. Cool. All right. Well, let's go ahead and jump into then what you sort of learned in doing the preparation for that article about like the history of the use of psychedelics, especially as it relates to, I mean, kind of anything, but as it relates to potentially psychological intervention or just wherever you want to take it. Yeah. It's, you know, it's sort of difficult to trace the history of psychedelics back too far, but I think the earliest that they can track down, like we know people were using psychedelics as sort of a rite of passage is about 6,000 years ago. Native Americans were there's documented cases of like people sort of using these as sort of spiritual rites of passage into like adulthood and things like that. Cool. So 6,000 years is about as far as we can trace it back. If you ask the right people, they'll suggest things like, you know, if you've watched enough Joe Rogan, you've might maybe heard of the stoned ape theory, sort of this idea that, you know, we can trace back our interaction with psychedelics back to like the stone age. Right. And okay, there's some understanding amongst this community that maybe what created human beings and our ability to interact with each other and to language with each other was actually our interaction with these these mushrooms right or or psychedelics of the time probably mushrooms i don't imagine they were brewing up lsd or anything like that but you know (laughs) it seems a little uh, (laughs) far-fetched yeah so there's you know there's an idea that's existed for a long time since the early days of lsd and sort of the you know, psychedelic revolution, if you will, in the 50s, that maybe this is the thing that made humans human, which would trace the history of our interactions with psychedelics much, much further than even just 6,000 years ago. So the hypothesis here, just to be clear, is that 
there were essentially primates that were non-languaging primates. Yeah. And they were just picking up mushrooms off the ground under cow patties a lot of the time or whatever. Right. And happened to eat some and they're like, I know language. (laughs) Kind of, yeah. (laughs) You know, some of the effects of mushrooms, if you want to put it really loosely, can be things like cooperative behavior or a sense of like community. That's something that a lot of people who undergo psychedelic assisted therapy report is things like, I just, I I feel like I know the trees and people and I'm one with the universe kind of stuff. Okay. And so that cooperative sort of, side effect i don't know what you would call it but you know that sort of ability to recognize the perspective of others and those kinds of things is what people are sort of proposing is what made humans human we are an ape with a symbiotic relationship to a mushroom if you will okay what is the evidence for that beyond the idea that it is plausible i don't think there is any okay (laughs) you know and it would be hard to it would be hard to trace any I mean, yeah, you, you could maybe look at like fossil. I don't know anything about this area as, as much as I ought to. You know, I would assume that you could look at like fossilized caveman poop and <laughs> try and see if there's psychedelic mushrooms in there. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that would be the best guess as to how we would, you know, sort of uncover some evidence as to whether or not this is a feasible theory. Well, it occurs to me also. Do you think it would be the case that if there were primates that were just on the cusp of like being human beings and they found mushrooms and just like that was the catalyst that pushed them over the edge into now we've got language and society (laughs) that we could find another similar primate that's like who's the furthest along on this route and then just see if we give them a bunch of mushrooms and they just develop language. Yeah, and... I think that is one thing that I tend to stay away from this idea. I think this idea is rooted in some ideas that are, I think when you ingest these psychedelic substances, there's a tendency to think that they're really, really powerful and really, really like otherworldly. Mm-hmm. I think that, that that's sort of what my paper is actually about is that when you ingest these substances, there's a tendency to think that you're making contact with a higher power or some kind of like otherworldly entity that is giving you information in some kind of transcendent way. Got it. I think it begs the question that we I maybe should have asked earlier, but what are psychedelics? Like what qualifies as psychedelics and how does someone categorize it that way? I think my own definition of a psychedelic is a substance which alters your contact with your environment primarily through language. So you might see things, right? You might have what might be called hallucinations. The walls might start breathing and things like that. You might have strange thoughts. So psychedelic substances, I think, as a class of like substance, is defined by having this effect of altering languaging functions, which is actually the kind of interesting thing about it. You know, animals will stay away from this stuff. They will treat it as like poison. Although the jury's kind of out on that. Generally speaking, it's really hard to say whether animals will move towards or move away from drugs because a lot of times when you put animals in really barren environments, like you just lock them in a cage with a drug, yeah, they're going to interact with that drug because it's, it's better than nothing, <laughs> yeah. right? Even if it like makes them puke and it makes them feel bad. But generally, you know, if you put them in a kind of enriched environment, my understanding is that they'll stay away from it. They'll treat it as though... It's something that is poisoning them and you can use it as kind of an aversive, right? Something to punish other kinds of behavior. 
and that's true as far as I know of the great apes as well. So they've, you know, as far as the, you know, the stoned ape theory goes, that would be where you'd want to explore is, you know, can we get the great apes of today to interact with these substances in a way that alters their contact with their environment in meaningful ways, right? That start to approximate cooperation, that start to approximate language. I think the evidence regarding our current great apes would suggest that they just stay away from it. Okay. So it sounds like rather than the idea that psychedelics grant language, that instead we experience psychedelics the way that we do as, with language as a prerequisite for that experience. Would you say that's the case? I think that's right. And I think that makes sense psychologically to me is you can't create something out of nothing, right? If you don't have the languaging capacity to interact in complex ways and say like see yourself right even even the ability to see oneself and think to yourself like i'm me and it's now and i'm here that capacity weirdly actually comes from language and we seem to kind of forget that as human beings because once you've sort of mastered that skill it's so automatic it's it's so hard to step outside of i you know me here now that you sort of forget that at some point that wasn't really something that you knew how to do and there's a lot of evidence in relational frame theory that suggests that this isn't actually a learned behavior to be oneself and to language about oneself, to recognize that I'm me and it's now and I'm here is actually a really powerful thing. And there are some suggestions in the relational literature that this is part of why humans engage in spirituality, right? So when you sort of can language about, oh my gosh, I'm, you know, you have a sense of meanness, right? You, a natural question that sort of arises from that is, where was I before I was me? Mm -hmm. And where will I go when I'm not me anymore? Yeah. Right. And so, but I don't think these are questions that my dog asks himself, right? Like my dog <laughs> doesn't wonder where he was before he was Astro and he doesn't wonder where Astro will go when he's dead. That's Fair. not a thing that my dog does. And I, I would argue that's not a thing that the great apes do. I would also say that psychedelics have their effect on these kinds of functions, right? Okay. Humans like psychedelics and they interact with psychedelics because of what it does to those kinds of language functions. Just real quick, because you mentioned the term relational frame theory, and a lot of our listeners will already know what that is, but if you could just unpack a little bit what that means. Basically, relational frame theory is an idea that what human beings can do that other animals can't largely or at least what we do a lot more readily is right. transformation of function so it's kind of amazing one example that's really common is like it's kind of amazing that we can play monopoly okay <laughs> and you know i could ask you questions about monopoly like where would you want to live where would your what neighborhood would your house be in Right. right. What neighborhood would you most likely get robbed in? Right. It would be the ones like towards the beginning. Baltic Avenue. Yeah. <laughs> right. Where's the neighborhood where the 1% live and where they have tennis courts and shit like that? Right. Yeah. And though, you know, it's kind of amazing that we can do that just based on the price of the property and where it's at and the color. Right. It, suddenly the color blue starts to mean all kinds of things like you have private tennis courts and things like that. Mm -hmm. Those kinds of things are not things that animals do that we know of and they certainly don't do easily that transformation of function is not there for a lot of animals and that is really magical it creates a lot of problems for human beings it creates a lot of human suffering but it also creates a lot of the complex it's it's why we sit in classrooms it's why we build buildings it's why you know it's it's why we are 
who we are, if we, <laughs> if you will. Way, um, way to drop it. <laughs> <laughs> so you know that's that's one of the ideas is transformation of function is is a unique kind of a it's an operant behavior and it's shapeable, it's learnable, and it's something that you can manipulate. And it's not something that necessarily lives in the brain or lives anywhere in particular in the organism. Maybe there, I think that you know. There's certainly some genetic predispositions that humans have towards cooperation and towards having the ability to language about things, but that it's learned. It's a behavior. It's an operant is sort of the relational frame theory idea. So this idea that we can sort of alter the semantic value of something simply by talking about it and our relation to that thing. So something that had no meaning to us whatsoever can be bad because I told you it was bad or it can be good because I told you it was good and there can be a hierarchy of how good it is so to titrate that a little bit yeah and one of my favorite examples of this is there was an experiment where they hooked people up to well they taught people you know less than more than right so you have an a stimulus a b stimulus and a c stimulus and it really doesn't matter what those are right it could be a letter it could be an arbitrary symbol and they teach you that a is less than b and c is greater than b right so by relation c is greater than a right yeah and so they'll figure that out for free so then they paired b with like a shock right and so you see you learn you sort of are matching things and they're saying pick the one that's less than pick the one that's more than Mm -hmm. and then eventually they administer a shock in the presence of b okay right and they show these people the a stimulus right and what the people are quote-unquote anticipating is a milder shock even though they've never been shocked in the presence of a they've only been shocked in the presence of b but that relationship between a and b is present in their understanding of shock right what is what is about to happen and what's even cooler is that when shown the c stimulus right which has the greater than relationship to the b the people actually responded more strongly than to the b stimulus which isn't what you would expect given just like a classical conditioning paradigm right yeah Given just classical conditioning, you should be the most scared of the thing that was directly paired with shock, mm-hmm. right? But that human beings can be more scared of a thing that has never been paired with shock due to a kind of verbal relationship between the stimuli. That suggests that we do something kind of unique there. And it also suggests, right, sort of immediately that it these kinds of relationships can hurt us. We can be more scared of something that we've never even contacted than something that maybe led to a bad outcome. We can be sort of crippled if you, at times by fear of things that we've never even really been exposed to. I think that experiment is a really nice demonstration of that. And so, and they weren't just measuring like people's report of their fear. They're actually measuring their skin conductivity or galvanized skin response. Yeah, and yeah, they were measuring sort of like the, you know, visceral kinds of things, heart rate and galvanic skin response and things like that. So yeah, this was a classical conditioning kind of thing. It wasn't as though people were, had to report even that they Mm -hmm. were more scared of the sea. My understanding too, is that the results would have been more powerful, but a lot of people like sort of exited the experiment early in the presence of the C stimulus. So they were like, nah, I'm not even going to try to be exposed to what C is going to bring to the table. They took off all the apparatus that they were on on them and it ruined their data. (laughs) Essentially, probably the more, you know, the people who responded the strongest actually noped out of the experiment. Yeah. (laughs) If you will. So that's kind of, you know, it's kind of a, it's a really nice demonstration of people's ability to language and how it affects us. Cool. 
All right, so let's return then back to our discussion about sort of the history of this. And and I'd asked what counts as a psychedelic because I was thinking, based on the description, would you describe things like alcohol and marijuana as falling in that category of psychedelics? No, I wouldn't. Although marijuana under some circumstances has been sort of loosely related to psychedelics, just given the nature of its functions to, like, especially when you eat it. Sure. It has different properties and, you know, it it has different kinds of things. But I don't think marijuana is largely considered a psychedelic. We're talking about things like LSD, psilocybin, MDMA. There's one that when you die, it gets released. Got it. So let's then go into some of the... We, we talked about like 6,000 years ago, you said there's evidence of tribes using it. What's the sort of next step in the history of people using psychedelics for whatever they're going to use it for? So for a really long time, there wasn't a whole lot of action in the United States as, in terms of these kinds of substances. You know, it's parts of Mexico, there's sort of a history and a cultural interaction with these substances. You know, Western exploration of psychedelics, it reaches back to the 1800s, but really picked up in the 1950s. Albert Hoffman was this lab dude and he was interacting with a kind of fungus and he was trying to actually do things to induce pregnancy. And he had this substance called LSD-25, right? Lysergic acid diethymide-25. So he was trying to induce pregnancy? That was kind of the idea was to uh, really efficiently... Not induce pregnancy, but induce labor. Labor, Excuse okay. me. Yeah, yeah. Even still. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was sort of the purpose of the substance was to indu- induce labor when it was sort of convenient. And he accidentally spilled some of this stuff on his skin. And he, he you know, he... Entered, accidentally. <laughs> yeah. He entered one of the first LSD trips. And just a small amount landing on his skin was enough to kind of put him in a dreamlike state. And he ended up kind of crashing on the couch for a little while. Okay. And he later ingested like a tiny amount like you know 0.25 milligrams or like something orally? crazy like, yeah yeah he, okay. he was like well that was interesting let's see what it does <laughs> if i eat it and he had a really horrible experience like okay. uh, he had one of the world's first bad lsd trips got it pretty quick quickly after and he thought that this was going to be like a permanent state of affairs so he was having a bad time and Afterwards, he sort of, you know, came out of it and recognized that this is a substance that might have some potential for research and that it may have some psychological effects that we might be interested in. Okay. You know, and from there, it sort of spread, you know, parts of Harvard, it sort of became this intellectual wonder drug, if you will. Like a lot of prestigious universities did research on it. It entered into the therapeutic domain pretty quickly. And... You know, even with the research, a lot of the students were using it outside of the research context really quickly. (laughs) Right. And so it sort of got this, it sort of got a reputation as this sort of, it's going to push your creative limits and those kinds of things. Right. And so it's going to stimulate intellectual thought is sort of the idea. Okay. And, you know, there's evidence, uh, well, there's not, you know, you can look back and see that a lot of major figures at the time were interacting with LSD. So like the Beatles would go to Mexico and trip on psilocybin for a while. And sure. The pretty, you know, it seems as though they kind of, a lot of their music has a kind of LSD vibe to it okay. as a function of that. So, you know, it sort of got this reputation as if you want, if you're smart and you sort of have it together and, then you can start sort of start to explore your mind, if you will. 
using these substances and people did very quickly and then it's you know just sort of suddenly got snuffed out with the war on drugs and you know you could imagine under the regimes that were present at the time that you know the dirty hippies that were using this stuff (laughs) it sort of got pushed underground really quickly got it but you know during that time a lot of psychological experiments were being conducted people were interested in the effects of LSD on psychological disorder and psychological dysfunction. Okay. I think I heard something about how because some of what people did when they were using LSD looked like a mental health disorder, that there was an idea that the LSD would cause that mental health disorder. And I'm thinking of schizophrenia specifically. Is that just something that I heard incorrectly or no that i mean that sounds right people were interested in all kinds of stuff regarding lsd and i think they are again today you know i don't think that idea is entirely gone people you know would be institutionalized it was not entirely uncommon to to experience hallucinations that were so powerful that you would end up kind of involuntarily kept in an institution you know some of the data that were kept on the early experiments were how many people would be put in an institution for longer than two weeks And so that parallel, you know, of seeing things that aren't there, right? Like interact, I would say interacting with stimuli that are not present for others, Mm -hmm. right? These verbal stimuli that you're producing largely due to your interaction with a substance. That's not a crazy idea at all. And it looks very much like other kinds of psychological dysfunction. It looks a lot like more severe versions, like what we see on TV that schizophrenia looks like. I think schizophrenia looks really different. Yeah. And, you know, it's not very often that people actually see dragons when they have (laughs) schizophrenia and stuff like that. That that would be really something else. But, you know, people hear voices and there's a lot of culturally bound stimuli that people interact with that aren't quite as crazy as we see on television. But, Mm -hmm. you know, certainly psychedelics do parallel those kinds of psychological dysfunctions. Okay. All right. So moving out of the... I think it was the fifties. You said is when a lot of that would yeah, take place. Um, yeah. So what what comes next in the history of psychedelics, and especially as it relates to psychology and psychological treatment? You know, I think it largely got squashed for a long period of time, and recently there's been a reemergence with you know medical marijuana has had seen some success. I think yeah, you know, not quite as much as one might hope, but it's about what one might expect. You know, with the reintroduction of medical marijuana and we've sort of taken it easy with the war on drugs i would say that a lot of the psychedelic community has come out of the woodwork right they've come out from the underground where they were sort of providing these kinds of treatments to people in the basement so you're seeing a lot of you know self-report kind of studies and clinics that have been open for a really long time that can now share information with other people whereas that was not the time wasn't right right so and these these modern psychedelic treatments have parallels to a lot of branches of psychology some some are more scientific than others you can imagine the kinds of people using psychedelic therapies you know some are going to be more scientifically oriented and some are going to be less (laughs) scientifically oriented and just you know rubbing patchouli oil on you with their uh, with their uh you know you get you get the idea. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, you know, there's been some parallels to some pretty scientific mu- movements, one of them being sort of the mindfulness practices of acceptance and commitment therapy. There's this kind of interesting thing where there's a mixed bag of scientists and pseudoscientists who are now starting to explore this area again. Cool. So 
what were some of the things that people have tried to use psychedelics for as far as treatment and what i guess are they trying to do that with now so like what what was used for what kind of ailments and where's that going so what has been done historically has been pretty wide open okay you know the military used psychedelics lsd namely as a kind of mind control project okay this is sort of common knowledge i would say yeah that the military got a bunch of soldiers like really really high and tried to see if they could like do things with their mind or if they could control their minds or things like that right and so they you know it's sort of a classic like ethics lesson that you learn in psychology like hey remember the time that they gave soldiers lsd without them even knowing (laughs) and they expected these big grandiose things like they would be able to you know see mind control and things like that but okay really what happened is the soldiers were just became like really interested in trees and, stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> and they were pretty hard to like wrangle you know and so things like that have been explored but the more promising like sort of realistic areas that people have dialed into are things like substance abuse kind of strangely yeah treating substance abuse with a really sort of profound experience propagated by a substance right and so there's reports of people who have smoked their whole lives and then they go on this psychedelic journey and then they are no longer smokers okay which we should take that with a grain of salt because those kinds of reports are common in like hypnosis and all kinds of other therapeutic sort of gray areas i guess (laughs) i would say but there are those reports and that is a current area that people are exploring. So can we make an alcoholic not an alcoholic anymore by sending them on a psychedelic journey? Other areas that are sort of more prominent are treatment resistant depression. So okay. people who have have depression and that they've been trying to treat it for years and years and years and it mm-hmm. hasn't been responding to treatment as usual. And then a last final area that people are exploring is people who the psychological effects of terminal illness. Hmm. So, you know, there are people who are, there's a date or, you know, a timeline for the end of their life and they're having trouble kind of wrestling with that. Mm -hmm. So they will often prescribe psychedelic treatments for those kinds of things, which is an interesting sort of use and not necessarily something that you would find in the DSM, but, you know, just a kind of existential crisis that comes with, those kinds of events so the idea there being primarily that they're wrestling with the knowledge of the of their own mortality and like i've got a limited timeline and that can create some suffering and so the idea here is that psychological some kind of psychedelic might reduce the suffering that they experience in knowing that their life is ending yeah and you know i think this is a pretty promising area you know i mean why not first of all yeah but you know and this is something that soldiers right at the end on the battlefield like painkillers were in part to kill pain yeah but in part it was to send you somewhere else right <laughs> yeah. i mean i think the kinds of treatments that were available to people on the battlefield they weren't really in that's what was occurring mm-hmm. right like you're you're experiencing some psychedelic effects of that painkiller as well mm-hmm. and so it's not just to get rid of like you know the acute sensation it's to also sort of transport you somewhere else and so change the way that you're interacting with it yeah absolutely so those kinds of treatments you know they sort of make sense to me from my understanding of psychedelics and how i'm interpreting its effects and things like that 
that seems like a commonsensical way to go about treating something like that if there is if we want to call it a treatment but it seems like a decent way to interact with that kind of event okay for those who choose to go that route right did you look into ayahuasca at all yeah they're all the same to me they all have different properties they all have different effects there's like frog venom there's ayahuasca there's Jeez. You know, the classes of psychedelics are pretty broad. Okay. But largely, they're all a little different, and the preparation is a little different for each of them, but sure. the effects are similar. Okay. And it's just how how much does it make you ill? A lot of psychedelics will make people really sick mm-hmm. to the point where they will throw up. And, yeah. You know, it makes you really sick to your stomach. The frog venom, I think, is known to be like one of the worst for that. Like, you kind of have to be, it's like expert <laughs> mode for yeah. the psychedelics, okay. as I understand it. <laughs> And it's the most powerful, but also the most just aversive and yeah. horrible. Okay. So a lot of people who use that, they sort of work their way up to those kinds of things. So I think, you know, yeah, they're all different. They're all going to have different effects and those effects are going to be important at some level. But right now I think we're just at the point where we're treating them as the kind of the same class of substance in a lot of ways. Cool. Well, do you have anything else on just like the history to understand that's necessary before we launch into a little bit more of like how they work and I guess what there is, like where the research is going? I think just it's important to note that, you know, the early research was pretty promising, but there's a lot of sort of case studies and you have to rely on a lot of self-report. Yeah. And it's also important to note, I think, you know, this is an exciting area and people are really into it, but it's important to not get too excited i think my my sort of message to the world on this topic is yeah it's it's exciting but let's be skeptical first yeah let's be scientific about it and that's hard to do when the people who are interested in this as scientists are are interested in the substance also yeah right and so (laughs) they tend to be you need to curb your advocacy for a minute and be skeptical of a thing that you think is important right right this happens you know this has happened with marijuana like there are people in the world who just like marijuana and so it becomes the treatment for all things and it becomes you become kind of blind to areas where you should be skeptical and i think this research is in an area where we should hold it really lightly if not be outright skeptical of what's coming out of this world and that's not to say that we shouldn't be doing research on it or we shouldn't be using it or any of that, those kinds of things. I think that, so I've given a couple talks on psychedelics and generally they've been more well attended than I've deserved, <laughs> if that makes sense. And that's kind of alarming because it's just demonstrating that, you know, this is an area that people are interested in. People want this to be true, I mm. think, is what is happening. And I think generally just people want to explore this area. Sure. And I think that's healthy and that's okay, but we shouldn't be blinded to the negative impacts and the negative outcomes. And I yeah. want to just say, you know, historically, these things have led to bad outcomes. There is a non zero chance that, you know, people will do horrible things as a result of psychedelic assisted therapy. Yeah. And maybe statistically they help a lot of people and maybe it's worth it. And maybe these things are really great, but you know, there are stories of people driving their cars into the front of businesses because of these kinds of treatments. And these are people who maybe had treatment resistant depression. And so they're, they're a difficult population to work with. Yeah. And there's a lot of, you know, 
who knows what caused it and who knows where that came from. And people do horrible things absent psychedelics all the time. Right. But I don't think it's going to take a lot. You know, it's just going to take one story of somebody who um, went to a therapist, received a psychedelic and did something terrible, grandiose and terrible. Yeah to really shut it down and move it back underground. And yeah. so I think a healthy skepticism is still where we're at with this field. Despite the early promise of, you know, what the 50s brought us and what the current research is bringing us. Makes sense. Okay, well, let's actually let's actually end it there for this part of the discussion. I'm going to want to break this up into a second part. We're going to talk more about sort of uh, where how it works, uh, how psychedelics work, how, a way to consider I guess the mechanism by which it operates in us, as well as what else you've learned in terms of what's going on in sort of contemporary research, what there is to be optimistic about. And we'll probably return to this message of being skeptical as well. Thank you everyone for listening and uh, check out, uh, listen in for next week. Go check out our next episode. We'll pick up this discussion where we left off. All right. This is Abraham and we are out. You've been listening to why we do what we do. Why we do what we do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo designed by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.